I'm Liam Printer and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motivated Classroom podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I am very excited today to have Dr. Florentia Henshaw in front of me here on screen in another country as always. And we have loads of amazing stuff to talk about today in terms of second language acquisition, meaning versus form, in terms of bringing the theory into practice, loads of good stuff. But of course, this is the Motivated Classroom podcast. So we must start with our little piece of Irish. And today the word for the day is wrong or wrong in a. Now you might hear the word wrong and think it's the opposite of right but actually in Irish the word wrong means your class. When we're speaking in Gaelic Irish we use the word wrong or wrong in a means lots of classes so if you hear that word when you're learning Irish or when you're in Ireland it's not that they're saying anything is incorrect it's the word we use for class. So Florentia hello and how are you? Thank you very much for joining me today. Hello Liam and thank you very much for having me. I am honoured, honoured to be here. Great. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you today. So as always, I'm going to try my best to introduce Florentia. And this is the part which I struggle the most whenever I do these interviews, but I will try my best. So Florentia has a PhD in second language acquisition and teacher education from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where she is now the director of Advanced Spanish. She has taught a variety of undergraduate and graduate courses, and she's published and presented nationally and internationally on technology integration, heritage language instruction and research-based pedagogical practices. She's also been invited speaker to the Motivated Classroom, but to other places almost as good as the Motivated Classroom like Harvard and Yale. Dr. Henshaw is the author of two Spanish textbooks and a member of the board of directors of the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese. Dr. Henshaw has received a number of awards, including the Excellence in Language Instruction Award and the Academic Professional Award. And her upcoming book, which I'm dying to read, is called Common Ground second language acquisition theory goes to the classroom. She's co-authored that with Maris Hawkins. And this really, the whole point of this book, if I've understand it correctly, is to try and help educators to visualise how to put these principles of second language acquisition theory into action and into the classroom. And many of you may be aware of Dr. Henshaw's work through her wonderful little bite-sized videos that she's been doing on YouTube. And that's certainly how I came across Florentia's work. And we've spoken to each other a few times on Twitter. So that wonderful technology bringing us together and if you haven't checked out our videos, I, I strongly recommend it. So Florentia, if you don't mind, we're going to get straight into talking here because I know we've so much to talk about and I want to use this time as best we can. So could we maybe just start by, could you tell us a little bit about your research interests and also maybe how that led you to doing these YouTube videos? Where did that come from? First, thank you for that kind introduction. So yeah, my dissertation was actually about learner-learner interaction in the classroom. So I have always been interested in research that is in inspired by what we notice in the classroom, what we see our students do, and then we wonder why are they doing this or are they learning or what do they even think about this? So I am interested in learning games, but I'm also interested in perceptions. Not all SLA researchers do that. So SLA is a very big field um, and we all have different interests. My interest is what happens in the classroom or how can I apply all these theories and all of these wonderful things we read in research to what I actually do 
in the classroom. Cool. And how, how did you get started on these YouTube videos? Where did that come from? Was that just an idea one day or did it come out of the pandemic or the COVID situation or kind of where, where did that come from? Because I absolutely loved them as a language teacher and I've spoken to many other language teachers around the world, both in my own school, but also in schools all over the country and in many other countries who have also watched these videos. And I think you do a wonderful job of making quite difficult research or decades of research into a small understandable video and I think you understand that the the thing teachers struggle with most is time and you've done a really good job of that. So where did that come from or why did you start that? Well, I think precisely time uh, was one of the factors that I definitely considered. I'm a very visual person and I also like concision. (laughs) And so I felt that it would be great if there was such a thing as a YouTube channel where an article could be summarized and presented, but I wanted to go beyond the types of summaries that you see on sites like Oasis, which is great. But to me, what was missing from them was the personal take, the interpretation of the results. And I understand why they don't include them and there's value in not including them either, right? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to give my own take on it as opposed to just presenting the results so objectively that it would still be difficult for teachers to know what do I do with this or what does this mean? Part of it is that I think some research studies are difficult to interpret, not in the sense that you don't understand the words that are on the page, but if you don't have all of that context, if you cannot start connecting the dots, just one study is not going to tell you enough or it might um, tell you the wrong conclusions, <laughs> the yeah. conclusions you don't want to reach. And so I do think that it's important for somebody with context. I'm not saying I know it all for somebody with context to digest the research and just to offer my own take on them. So time Time, definitely. Um, Accessibility, not just in terms of understanding, but also some articles, um, uh, they are behind paywalls, so not all teachers can access them and actually read them. Um, And I do think that sometimes we get mixed messages, right? I appreciate people sharing on social media, but a a quick tweet on this was more effective than this Mm -hmm. without the necessary context can also be very confusing. I really appreciate them and muchas gracias for all of those wonderful little videos because I think you do a great job of bringing them into context and just what you said one of the things I personally like the most from them is your take right at the end kind of you sum it up and you kind of say so for me and then you kind of give what your take is on that and again I feel like that too with this podcast that you know I'm just one teacher and I'm I'm giving my opinions and the way that I see it in context with my classroom and things I've read but I am conscious that there are many other teachers who see it in a different way and who take it in their own way but and I was a little bit afraid of that too of saying like well this is the way it works for me and this is how this works in my classroom and listening to this research I believe this and this and I am conscious of that because I know that it goes straight in the face of what some teachers are doing but I think it's really important to give that take and to say this is the things I've read and this is how I feel it applies so I really do think that's that's really nice that you've done that and coming from someone who has a PhD in the whole area of language acquisition is really valuable for us as a field. Now 
in one of the videos that I watched, you say that SLA researchers, and for those listening, SLA is second language acquisition. So SLA researchers should not dismiss teachers' experiences and insights, but also the teachers should not dismiss the current research. I thought that was really insightful and actually sums up a huge amount of what I'm trying to achieve on the podcast. Could you, could you expand a little bit more on this and why, why you said that? Sure. I think it's because of what I was noticing by interacting with teachers, but also then by reading the research. It is true that it feels like it's two different worlds, but they don't need to be. So when I say that researchers shouldn't dismiss teachers, what I mean is that I think research needs to keep in mind the reality of the classroom. I'm not saying all studies need to be classroom-based. I fully agree that sometimes it is very good to control factors, to select your participants carefully, of course. But at least in terms of implications, to me, it's a huge missed opportunity when SLA research cannot give teachers any clues at all as to what their findings mean for them. I do think that SLA research can tell teachers a lot. And I'm not saying that it should be telling them what to teach and how to teach every day, but at least these little clues to help them reflect on what that could mean for their classrooms. Um, And then in terms of teachers, I understand why uh, some teachers, including me, might read an article and think something like, well, my learners are very different from these participants, so this doesn't apply to me. This is just not me, so This article doesn't have anything to tell me, but I think it's important to look at the bigger picture and to connect those little dots. Um, And I'll give an example from an article that I unpacked recently that was on spelling instruction with heritage speakers. So these are speakers, uh, students who grew up with the language at home and now they're taking that language in school. And so it's easy to say, well, I don't teach heritage speakers. So this video, this article doesn't apply to me. But when you look at it, what they found echoes what other studies have found in terms of explicit instruction of grammar with second language learners, which is that it makes the learners think twice and want to say less because they're being extra careful about what they're saying. So in a way, it makes us reflect on to what extent explicit instruction of spelling or grammar is stunting the learner's creativity and and willingness to express themselves. Even if you don't teach heritage speakers, you can still get something from that article. Um, Research doesn't have all the answers. Let's start there, right? So you're not going to find every answer that you need in a research study. Uh, But to me, the way I look at it is it gives us clues to help us reflect. Yeah, that's such a nice way of putting it. And I think one thing that struck with me a lot is that when sometimes teachers are, as you say, they may be a little bit apprehensive with some of the studies and say, well, this doesn't really reflect my context. And that word context is really important for me because when I try and speak to teachers about research and things I've read or studies that have happened, I think it is really important to take into account that each teacher's individual experience does come into their context, you know, the way how long you've been teaching, the way you've been teaching and the way you were taught can impact your own context. And so what I love is that metaphor of just our grain of salt on the mountain of research and and all the things out there with experiences also in that too, that 
when we read more and we watch your videos and we think about more about what we're doing, for me, what's really important is that we're starting to unpack a little bit our deeply held beliefs about how language works and how languages are acquired and learned, because most of us learned and were taught languages in the same type of way in the classrooms that we grew up in. Some of us didn't, but many of us, many of us did receive language, which was a grammar translation model as we grew up. And we kind of think, well, you know, it worked for me. I'm now fluent in two or three languages and I'm a teacher and this is great. So that's the way it works. And what I think your videos really help is for many teachers to just start to unpack some of those and think, okay, just because it worked for me, there may be as many, many learners out there which this isn't the right way to go about things. Would would you agree that it helps us to kind of tackle those beliefs a little bit as well? Absolutely. And if I can share my experience, I learned English by watching TV. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that I'm just going to go to class and turn on a sitcom and then, okay, bye. <laughs> Good luck to you. Now you're going to learn this language. So I think for me, what helped me was to unpack my own experience and understand why did I help me so much? And then what can I do to get inspired by my own experience, whether it is something that you want to change or something that you want to replicate. But going back to principles of second language acquisition to me is fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. And those underlying core principles are so important. And I think that episode in episode 50, when I spoke to Dr. Bill Van Patten and Dr. Karen Lichtman, there's a huge response to that episode because they really did start to unpack some of those principles that underline what language acquisition is. And, and I think that your, your videos really contribute to that. And in that vein, you and I have spoken a bit about your upcoming book, Bringing Second Language Acquisition theory into the classroom. So what brought you to writing this book and why do you think it's so important to do this now? So I think the inspiration for the book in a way mirrors the inspiration for the YouTube channel. It really came together for me after teaching the so-called methods course uh, here, which is I'll explain it as best as I can, is a one semester course that our graduate students take and it's supposed to help them understand how to teach language or the basics of second language acquisition. The students that we have are wonderful, but they're not all interested in second language acquisition and they don't have the background to be reading these studies. And a lot of the times what they want is tell me what I need to know and then how do I apply that to the classroom? And so in, in courses like the methods course, Typically, what you see is a survey of approaches and we learn about grammar translation and audiolingualism and, you know, communicative language teaching and so forth. Or sometimes it's just a summary of research. OK, one week we're going to talk about interaction. So let's read some research about interaction. But for somebody who doesn't have a solid background in SLA, to me, that is more confusing than helpful. You read one article that claims one thing and then you read another scholar claiming something completely different. I understand why, why that is valuable for somebody doing a PhD in SLA, because you need to understand all of the debates going on. But I don't think it's helpful for someone taking a class who wants to know the basics, the fundamentals of it, and then knowing how to apply that in the classroom. And so what I wanted to do was to summarize, simplify, and make accessible all of those fundamentals that most SLA scholars can agree on, and that's why it's called common ground. Instead of focusing so, so much on all of the debates going on, 
what if we go back to the things that we agree on? Yeah. We may not fully agree on with everything, but there are some fundamentals that most people do agree on. And that's what I wanted to, to focus on. Oh, that's such a great idea. Now the penny has dropped for me why it's called Common Ground. I was wondering about that title and I love it now. That's such a it's such a wonderful approach to go. Well, there's all these debates going on, but actually we agree on some stuff. And what are those things and, and how can we bring that to the classroom? I love that idea. That's great. Well, and also Common Ground, I, I'm I'm big into titles. I had to th- really think about this title. Also Common Ground because I felt this division between high school and college, right? So, or pre-secondary and post-secondary. And we actually have a lot more Common Ground than it, than it looks. And also Common Ground between theory and practice. And so the book, every chapter has two main sections. The first one is called, What Do I Need to Know?, that's actually the name of the section. And the other section is called, what does it look like in the classroom? Mm, lovely. And so I wanted to bring not just the common ground among researchers, the common ground between our different contexts and the common ground between knowledge and practice. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think that is exactly what we are crying out for, actually. That is that is one of the most important things we need. Okay, so Florentia, on that kind of point, and I must admit, I do not come from a second language acquisition background. My undergraduate degree was in business with French and Spanish. So the French and Spanish part of my degree was very much learning the language with a little bit of literature, but very little in second language acquisition. And just as you mentioned, when I did my postgraduate diploma in education with French and Spanish, that is when when I got a lot more of my grounding in second language acquisition. And just as you said, on many occasions, I was left far more confused than informed because there was so much coming at me at once and I didn't have that background. And now I am a language teacher. And of course, I've, I've spent a long time reading around these things and trying to inform myself as the time has gone on. But many teachers, I think, might be in a similar situation to me. So if you were to say there was one or two key principles about second language acquisition that you would like the listeners, mainly language teachers, to take away, could you could you have a go at summarising those for the listeners? Sure. I'd say probably the first one that comes to mind is that I think most scholars, if not all, agree that acquisition, acquiring a language, is mostly implicit, meaning that you cannot consciously control it. And I think that's important for the classroom. And also, it depends on making form-meaning connections. So meaning has to be key. What I see in a lot of language textbooks is so much focus on the form to the point that the meaning becomes secondary. And it shouldn't be that way. Acquisition is very much dependent on meaning. And then the other thing that I would like to say is that both input and output play roles. Now, they don't play the same role and we could perhaps argue whether they play roles for acquisition, probably not, but they play roles for language development. And to me, that's an important distinction. Yes, input drives acquisition, if we define acquisition as building the system. But to me, output is also important in developing communicative ability, which is what a lot of us want or we want our learners to be able to do. 
And so to, to keep that in mind, what the roles are of input and output for language development. That's awesome. And I, I think you've summed it up so nicely. And there is often that I feel that kind of dichotomy or there's that, you know, one versus another when it comes to input, output, meaning, form. And as you've said, there's so much common ground there. And I've always thought when I started to learn a lot more about the comprehensible input approach and teaching with lots and lots of compelling input, which I love, I remember often feeling like I was being attacked if I said that I like to use output in my class too. Or, and I love the way you've put it there, that it's, it's all part of the language development and the communication. And as you said, that maybe the acquisition is all going on we're building that system but the development we do need some output and for me as someone who's read much more around motivation that the motivation is very high when we have some output and interaction and the students feel competent that they're actually being able to do something with the language and one of those tasks I often do for my beginner students is when we've done our first story we've built a character they know it and they've read it and we've talked about it and they've drawn pictures of it and all these things and they bring it home and read it and translate it to their mother tongue with their parents and the parents write a little comment after about five weeks or six weeks of classes they feel hugely competent being able to do that and translate and the parents are always blown away because they can do all this after a few weeks we are not concentrating on any grammar points we're just concentrating on building a fun story together so I think that output part is, is really really key and just talking a little bit about that Frencia what changes do you think as a SLA scholar we need to do in our own classrooms in order to motivate engage more students have more engagement in our language classes so that our students want to continue to study languages for more years which for me is really key what kind of changes do you think we need to make in our classrooms I'm not sure that are necessarily changes I think a lot of instructors are already doing this so I do want to acknowledge that probably the biggest one is to have realistic goals realistic objectives and to focus on what they can realistically do with the language at different levels and how fast we're moving whether it is how fast we're moving from input to output whether how fast we're moving from one level to the next Everything in language acquisition tells us that it is slow, it is very complex, and many times we're approaching it from such a conscious place, which makes sense, but we want it to be, well, here's the explanation, now you can use it, or here's the vocabulary, so now let's use it for a dialogue, and it just doesn't work that way. And so I think frustration doesn't help anybody stay motivated and want to continue study the language. So how can we minimize that frustration? And notice I say minimize and not eliminate because learning a language is, to me, <laughs> inherently frustrating, right? At some point you are going to get frustrated that you don't know how to say something, that you knew that but you don't know it anymore, or that you're just feeling uncomfortable out of your comfort zone speaking the language. So it, I think a little bit of that frustration comes with all language learning, but how can we minimize it so the students feel that they can do things with the language? To me, that is very motivating. The other thing that I would say is related to what you just shared, and I don't know that it's necessarily SLA related, but to me it's very important, and it is to praise creativity and curiosity. We get so focused on praising mastery, right? When they said something, right. <laughs> well, what about everything else, right? That language entails. So I, I try to remind myself to do tasks where they can be creative. So they're not so focused on what language we're using, just like you said with the story, right? And also curiosity, what do they want to learn? 
Um, I think it's important to provide spaces where the students can tell you what they want to learn and for us to let go of control a little bit, which it is also related to SLA, right? If it's something uh, mostly implicit, that means that we cannot consciously control it. And so same with their own learning process and their own learning interest. We need to let go of some of that control and let them figure out what they want to learn too. I couldn't agree more. I mean, and from a motivation background, all of that ties so closely towards self-determination theory. We need to provide students with more autonomy. And, and when we allow creativity and curiosity, that is the basis of autonomy. You are allowing them to explore aspects and say things that they want to say as opposed to us telling them what to say because that's just autonomy suppressive. And the research is pretty robust in this area that when we're autonomy suppressive, this really quenches and diminishes the motivation in the classroom and then we're kind of on a downward spiral once you get rid of that autonomy and you're being talked at instead of being talked in a conversation and I think Bill Van Patten talks about that talk to your students or with your students instead of talking at them and I think that that's a really important distinction as well to allow their curiosity and what is it they want to communicate and if it was their brother's birthday at the weekend and the cat fell into the birthday cake well that's the stuff they want to tell us so we need to try and give them the space to do that that's the important things well as always we're coming towards the end of this amazing conversation and I always say this but it's so true at the end of these interviews I always think I wish my episodes were four hours long and not 30 minutes but there we go I don't know how many listeners I'd have if they were four hours long so as a last question for Enchi I often ask my my podcast interviewees this question if we want language teachers to take away three key tips that you have for them from this episode what do you think would be the vast majority of people listening to this right now are language teachers all over the world teaching a variety of languages in different contexts. If you had three things you wanted them to take away to their classrooms when they go in the Monday morning after listening to this, what would they be? It's difficult to say just three, but okay. Um, The first one I'll say is probably that being informed is empowering. And there isn't just one right way of being informed. You don't have time to read research articles. That's okay. We all consume professional development differently Maybe you like in-person talks, maybe you like YouTube videos, maybe you like podcasts, maybe you like reading blog posts. That is okay. Find what works for you to be informed. And by being informed, you're going to feel more secure when you engage in discussions with colleagues. You're going to feel more confident about the activities that you're choosing for your students. So be informed. Related to that, probably the second point is to go back to full picture, not just jumping to conclusions based on one study. So when somebody says that they do research-informed pedagogy, what does that mean? Because you can find research to justify just about everything you want to justify. So be skeptical of research too and go back to that. Connect the dots, not just look at one dot. Related to that, what I would say is let's not be so quick to dismissing each other, going back to what we discussed at the beginning of the episode. Let's not be so quick to label somebody and say, oh, you are TBLT, you're task-based, or you're a cognitivist, or you are a social culturalist, or you are this, you are that. That process of labeling people and jumping to conclusions about what they believe is dangerous. Um, And I think it can be sometimes alienating. It doesn't build bridges. It just makes us not want to discuss things with that person. 
And to me, it should be a conversation, not a competition to see whose approach or whose perspective is better. And like mm -hmm. I said in one of the YouTube videos, principles over labels. So go back to the fundamentals, the things that we all or most of us agree on. Yeah, that's wonderful. And three absolutely brilliant points. And I particularly love the first one about just being informed. And that is why most people are listening to this right now, because they want to inform themselves. They want to learn. They want to hear about the research. They want to hear about different teaching methods. And, and fundamentally, as teachers, we do want to be good at our jobs. We enjoy the interactions with students. We enjoy feeling like they're smiling and progressing. That is a big part of it, the intrinsic motivation. So thank you so much, Dr. Florencia Henshaw for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. And thank you for everything you're doing with this podcast. I think it's fantastic. Excellent. Thank you so much. So before we go, of course, to all the listeners, I want to say a massive Gurmila Mahagav, the Irish for thank you, or merci beaucoup, vielen dank, to all of you out there who are supporting the podcast on patreon.com. Remember, you can find it, just look for the Motivated Classroom. But if you're not in a position to get me a coffee or a bag of crisps once a month it is absolutely okay keep listening for free keep sharing it with people there's no bother whatsoever as we say in Ireland no hassle so it's all good and of course we need to finish the episode with our little Irish word which today was the word wrong or wrong in it meaning class or classes and next week we're going to start talking a little bit more about parents the impact of parental beliefs on language acquisition and also what that means in terms of homework and what homework do we give and how do we do it so that's coming up in the next few episodes. Thank you so much to all of your listeners. The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.